Alright, so episode introduction here. Little little intro music. What? Shit, hold on. I feel like I have to sneeze. Well do it. Fucking do it, bro. Fucking sneeze, bro! <laughs> it won't come out. Alright. Just... Alright, we'll just sneeze away from the mic if, <laughs> if you have okay. to. Okay, alright. I mean, I could always yeah. cut your sound for it. Okay, alright. You're like, hello, my name's Haley. Just fuck up the... Yeah, alright. I'm only human, whatever. Yeah. Okay, so episode intro here, a little jingled. Alright. Hello, welcome to the podcast. This is the first episode of The Films I Wish I Made. My name is Ryan Rochelle. You can find me on the socials at Ryan Rochelle. That's R-A-C-H-A-L-L. Or you can also go to at Dakin's Productions. That's D-A-A-K-I-N-S. And I am a filmmaker. And with me here is... I'm Haley Devlin. I am a news producer currently. Um, on social media, you can find me at Spooky Kooky Haley. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and that is Kooky with a K. Haley, H-A-Y-L-E-Y. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so today, we are going to be talking about Night of the Living Dead, the 1990 remake. That's one of the films that I wish I made. It's a film that had a tremendous impact on me, so that's why I chose it for this episode. Um, those of you who don't know, there was an original Night of the Living Dead that was made in 68, which is also a favorite film of mine, but the remake has a special place in my heart, starring Tony Todd, the one true candy man, mm-hmm. and of course, Patricia Tallman, who you may recognize from nothing else because she's a stunt woman and she pretty much has no other roles starring in any other movies. Um, apparently, she was the possessed witch in Army of Darkness. So that's cool. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and it's weird because she does really well in this film. And honestly, she's she's stunning. And it's, yeah, you would. Think oh, she's that, gorgeous. I mean, maybe it was a personal choice. Maybe she didn't want to act more. Um, you know, maybe she is really good at stunts. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. She has a a pretty nice IMDb, but it's clear that most of her roles, she's either a stunt performer or she has a role that she got because she's got to do stunts. Like that's, that's pretty much what her career revolves around, which I never really uh, knew that until this last viewing of the film. And I really took note of how, yeah, she's actually really doing her own stunts. And like, I never thought about it before, but yeah, I mean, she's running uh, barefoot and with like, pretty sure no knee pads and just taking spills left and right. That's true. Yeah. Now that you point that out. Yeah. You, you just take it for granted. It's shot so well. So yeah. And then uh, also Tom Towles is also one of the uh, supporting cast who uh, no longer with us. He passed in 2015, but he's, he's a, a very good villain if you needed one for this kind of film, even though we already have zombies uh, surrounding us. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I guess, I guess let's get into it. I mean, we can, summarize the film really quick just so it's it's fresh in everyone's head um if you haven't seen in a while but spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie why are you listening to this podcast yeah that's a bad idea yeah don't do that like you're not gonna enjoy it 
Hey everyone, if you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead 1990, make sure you go check out the official release. These are great films that everyone should see. Frankly, if you haven't, you're really missing out. So go watch the movie and then come back to the films I wish I made. Or the curse of spoilers will befall you for a hundred years. I recommend in this case you go watch both the 68 and the 90 version and then come back to the podcast because this is this is not a podcast that's going to be a review. We're going to be analyzing the film and talking about what we love about it uh, and also maybe some changes we would make. Also, oh, I forgot to mention, uh, this one is directed by uh, Tom Savini and most people know him as a, an effects makeup person. Yeah. But... Uh, this is like his directorial debut and, you know, George A. Romero couldn't do it because he was contractually obligated to do something else at that time. So even though he was heavily involved, he was a producer and he was, uh, on set a lot. Uh, I still kind of think it's Romero's vision. Um, and you have the original producers there making sure that kind of Savini stayed in line with what they wanted to do with their property for the second time around. So, yeah. That being said, I mean, I think Tom Savini's still awesome filmmaker in his own right. He's got a couple other films since that I really enjoy. He is, but what an interesting position to be in. Like, how many other movies, you know, does that really happen with? And that's what, when this film originally came out, a lot of critics had that complaint. They were like, this is just the exact same movie remade twice. You know, not so much of a remake, but interesting to think about. And I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I think it's very different. And if you're not watching them closely enough, maybe you don't realize that. But we'll get, I guess we'll get into yeah. all of that. But so let's summarize the film really quick for people who haven't, haven't uh, seen it in a while. So we open on a nice, bright, sunny day in, with two siblings arguing in a car ride headed to visit their mother in the cemetery. The best place to start any zombie movie, right? It's, it's, it's not a very complicated plot. The thing I like about Romero is he doesn't get into why things are happening too much. He maybe delves into people kind of guessing or trying to find answers, but he never really gives you a definitive reason. So ultimately what you have is Barbara, after escaping from the cemetery, winding up at a house, ends up meeting Ben, who is also sort of our, our co-lead character, and they end up finding another group of people who have already been in the house and they're sort of forced to make the best of a bad situation with this random group of people uh, as the onslaught of the undead sort of winds up around them and focuses on, on humanity as, as Romero likes to do. He doesn't focus so much on the zombies or their lack of humanity. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. He really, he really focuses on, how human beings handle themselves in these kinds of situations. And the situation could be really any kind of catastrophe. Really what the film is about is, at its heart is how will these people deal with death, imminent death, the threat of imminent death all around them? Will they be able to work together? Um, will they be able to rise above their differences, solve the problems that mm-hmm. they need to solve? Or will, you know, they destroy each other because of their bickering and uh, their selfishness and, you know, their their opinions and, and all those sort of uh, politics that get in the way of being a cohesive group, especially in uh, our contemporary society. Uh, 
which I you could say rings truer today <laughs> more than any other time in America. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I definitely think it was interesting going back and watching that film with everything that's been happening. Um, and, and just looking at the different factions that form and how some of the characters have trouble seeing the humanity in the other characters and, and how they're, they put themselves above the fact that they're a human being too. It's just the, the selfishness in this movie, I think is really interesting to watch. It definitely plays out um, in a way that you, you, you kind of kicking yourself because you're like, you, you guys could work together. You guys could be helping each other. There's a lot of things that be, could be getting done in, in this situation. Right. If you guys would just put uh, the pettiness aside and figure out the best way to, for everyone to survive. And it, 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 there, there are scenes where people really say it. They say it out loud. I mean, when Ben meets uh, Cooper, he literally says, you know, I've only known you for about five minutes, but I could tell I don't like you. So stay the hell out of my way. Yeah. And that's just not the right attitude to have, even though that guy is a dick. Like, that's not the right attitude to have in this situation. No. You know? You got to maybe get people on the same page. I, I, Cooper's a dick. Like, Yeah, Cooper is a dick. Undeniably. But to be fair, Cooper has a sick daughter. And, you know, I, I think uh, that's where his head is at, even though he's a dick about it. I guess uh, before we jump too far ahead, I mean, I, think, I feel like that's the best I can summarize the film without doing a scene by scene uh, description. Yeah. But so before we get into the film further, uh, I guess I want to just talk about my personal experiences with it. Um, the first time I saw it, I think I was maybe seven, eight, couldn't have been older than nine. Uh, we had cable. We had all the movie channels. Right. So I would watch a lot of movies that I shouldn't have been at that age. Same. Um, I, yeah, I saw all the horror movies. Some of them were edited on like certain channels. So, like the nudity was kind of downplayed. But it's still a lot of gore, though. Yeah. <laughs> so and then some like the cursing was like minimized. But like people would still get decapitated, which I found interesting. Yeah. I definitely saw this on cable originally. Um, this is one of the ones where I, I don't think it was edited though. That's exactly how I originally saw it. And I must've been about the exact same age. I had to be like about seven years old and I don't know if it was HBO. I don't know what channel it was on, but somebody had bought the film and they would air it a lot. And I had seen it multiple times at a very young age, you know, I'd turn on the TV, I'd catch it in the middle, maybe towards the end. Um, you know, but I'd seen it so many different times and always started at a different point. And, um, yeah. you know, this was my first time going back and rewatching it as an adult, actually, for the podcast. And uh, there were so many things that I was like, oh, I remember that. I remember that. And um, it was just interesting, the things that stuck with me and then the parts I forgot. Right, right. And this was my first time ever seeing it in HD, actually, which it still stands up. I think the remaster was really good. I bought a Blu-ray copy um specifically for the podcast i already own it on dvd but if i was going to rewatch it i've already seen it so many times i thought i i've been wanting to upgrade to a blu-ray for the longest time this is the perfect excuse um but i've already seen the movie it's so it's so many times like somewhere between t 20 to 30 times this is the film that especially once i owned it 
people would come over and I'd be like, you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead? And I would just put it on. And I'm like, that's what we're doing now. We're watching this movie. Right. You know, that's you, it, it's your fault because you haven't seen it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a quintessential zombie film. And, yeah. And if you like zombie films, if you like horror, you should see this movie. Which I do. I'm obsessed with zombie films. I'm definitely this. Is, and this is probably the first zombie film I think I ever saw. This is the one that got me obsessed with it. And I think after this, I saw Return of the Living Dead, not yes. realizing that it wasn't an official sequel yes. at the time because I was so young. But I was like, this took a left turn. <laughs> yeah. And, and we could save that for another podcast. But Return of the Living Dead is one of my absolute favorite zombie movies. And I think it's really interesting that Russo and Romero came together and they made the original. And then they split off and we get these two different worlds of zombies. Ones where yeah. they don't take themselves as seriously, but the gore and the, the fear is still there. And I really love Russo yeah. zombie movies. But then Romero takes more of this sociological path on his zombie movies that are really more of a character study of humanity. Definitely, definitely. That are just quite a bit deeper. And they're both really great in their own right. But the fact that it all started with those two minds just coming together. Yeah. And, and I like watching the movie and seeing the different parts of them both in there. Oh, yeah. When they're when they're together, I think you have a, a solid film. I don't know if you go you go too far in one direction and you're 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 running a gamble for sure. Yeah. Um, You know, because you can get too campy uh, or you can get too cerebral with something that arguably isn't that uh, cerebral to begin with. You know, it's it, how how far can you explore um, humanity in a crisis? Because that's maybe not the best time to explore humanity, one, one could argue. But yeah, I guess the, one of the biggest influences that this film had on me is that this idea that like big things can happen in small settings with small groups of people. Like you can take a handful of people, put them in a room, and then just end their world. I mean, growing up, I watched big films like Terminator 2 on Laserdisc, and that's a film where everything's blowing up and you've got Gatling guns and explosions. And so that was a lot of the movies early on that I had seen, big 80s testosterone action movies. Yeah. And I loved them. And, and, and Bruce Lee films as well, Jackie Chan films, big, complicated, intricate fight choreography. Mm-hmm. You basically need a lot of money to make those kinds of films. Oh, definitely. Uh, especially to make those kinds of films safely. Yeah. This is one of the first films I saw that I really liked that was not a big budget film that kept me on the edge of my seat as a child, you mm -hmm. know, throughout the entire thing. And it's really not big. It's not, you know, there is a explosion, but you're, it's so late in the film, you don't care if that happens. It's just icing on the cake, really. It's, it's, you're so uh, committed to seeing what happens with these characters and how they work together. And so that's kind of the biggest influence it, it had on me is that, wow, you can take big ideas and put them in these small settings and still make a captivating film. Yeah. You know, I read on IMDb um, that Tom Savini said that only 40% of his ideas made it into the film. Oh, yeah. I thought that was an interesting tidbit. And um, the fact that he wanted it to be a lot goyer than what producers actually greenlit in the final cut. Well, I think the MPAA is what really got in their way. Probably. Because I saw some of the behind the scenes I'd seen before on the DVD. I rewatched it. 
for the podcast. And then I, I did listen to the commentary, which I told you was sucked because Tom Savini, all he talks about are the effects for the entire movie. He just, he doesn't talk about anything else but the effects. And so he just, I get that. That's your bread and butter, but like it's, you directed the movie, man. Yeah. Like, but I think I think ultimately, yeah, it, it was very much the producer's movie because they owned it. They wanted to remake it to reestablish their copyright, which for the original, which ultimately didn't work in their favor. But they wanted to make money off of something they they lost the rights to right so many years ago. So it's it's one of those things where you know people always have this idea of like, oh, the producers are messing with the director's vision. This is one of those rare cases where the producers are the only people in the room who really deserve to have the vision, you know, like yeah. they're it's their movie and it was awesome for them to give him the chance to direct. But at the same time, it was really something that happened because George couldn't do it. They weren't directors, they're producers. Russo is also a writer. Um, they just wanted to get their copyright back for their movie and they wanted to do justice by the people who had worked on the original film. But that's why I also love this film so much. It's it's one of the rare examples where you actually have the original team coming back to remake their movie. Normally, that doesn't happen in this industry. No, it really doesn't. And I think it's really interesting to see the changes that were made that were more producer driven and the chance to go back decades later and improve upon your work like that is not something we see in films. Right. And not the not the lazy George Lucas way where you like update the effects and ruin scenes that, that fans of your series love. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? No, this I'm... is legitimately like like improving the script with a bigger budget and actually contemporizing it and making it uh, make sense for the year that you're remaking it in. Right. Yeah. So this is one of the one of those rare chances where you get the people because the first one is very low budget. This is like their, that was like their first time out. So this is the chance where, OK, you had a great idea. Now you have the money to actually do that great idea justice and you have more experience under your belt. So it's just for me, the remake wins hands down because it's just it's what the original should have been if if it could have been. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, interestingly enough, happy 30th anniversary. Uh, <laughs> it, this, uh, this film actually came out October 21st, 1990. So we're, we're right upon the 30th anniversary. So I might have to watch it again. Oh, I wasn't even thinking about that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's crazy too, because it still holds up really strong 30 years later. Funny thing about that though, is films like this in general aren't received very well by like critics usually uh horror films are grossly overlooked so obviously there's no oscars for this film um i was a little shocked to realize that it didn't win any awards like i looked it up and it apparently was nominated for two saturn awards obviously best horror film and best makeup and it didn't win either one of those so it, it has no real official awards but there are definitely some technical achievements in this film that stuck with me. But when this came out, so it came out right around Halloween, 1990. It had a budget of 4.2 million, and it only grossed 5.8 million. And opening weekend, it was like 2.9 million. Mm -hmm. So, moviegoers of the 1990s, what the fuck? <laughs> what were you doing that like you couldn't go see an awesome zombie movie for Halloween? <laughs> like, that's interesting i don't get that to think about because yeah. it's like that seems like the 
the big thing to go to the theater for around Halloween is scary movies, you know, and, right. you know, the movies were so much bigger back then, you know, it was like, if you wanted to see a movie, you went to the movies, you know, there was no way to yeah, watch it no at streaming. home. Like, the, <laughs> yeah, right. that's definitely surprising. It, yeah, but it, it definitely made its money back. And obviously with home box office and uh, HBO, actually, they're the ones who I think bought it and it was playing on that all the time so that's probably where we watched it uh i think hbo was playing it all the time because yeah because i do remember when i watched it it was not edited and hbo won't edit films yes that's true i do remember the gore because it's not tv it's hbo the headshots everything (laughs) yep um yeah uh so so one of the technical achievements that stood out for me was something i'd never seen before is there's that very skinny zombie that comes through the window Mm-hmm. And he's shirtless and he gets shot in the chest. And this is a great moment. I'll come back to this moment. But the but the effects for that um, are amazing. They had to get this really skinny actor mm-hmm. uh, to be able to mold the the zombie carcass body over with squibs in it. And he had to be so skinny that when they added all these prosthetics, it didn't bulk him up so much where he looked unrealistic. So. I've never seen anything like that in a film up to that point. And, and I haven't seen it in many films since then. Uh, but to, to have squibs going off on a shirtless person, to see a shirtless person being shot on camera is something that is almost never in any film. No, it's not. And, I, you know, now that you're saying that that's how they did that, I'm thinking of that moment, that guy standing in the window. And I remember thinking, wow, that guy is so skinny. And to think that he stayed <laughs> looking that skinny while having that much stuff on him, that had to be really difficult and i think knowing that tom savini had his hand in this film is people going to that length for their effects going you know above and beyond yeah i think i think if you look at the behind the scenes obviously you can see it's a little thicker than it looks in the film but that's where you got to know how to light your effects you got to know where to position your camera and and how to compose the shot and how to hide the things that you don't want the audience to see and obviously savini knows that before he ever sat in a director's chair so yeah you know i mean that's why that's why the effects sell so well uh and going back to older movies like this i mean sometimes it's it can be hit or miss but i do miss practicals a lot and oh yeah you don't have to worry about any bad cgi after you go back to a certain point uh in film history because there's a lot of films from the, uh, the early 2000s even the late 90s that they just didn't age well because Hollywood was aggressively trying to use CGI and it doesn't age well when it's new technology and you're barely having the processing power to really convince anyone that these things are photorealistic. Yeah. It was impressive at the time because we hadn't seen anything like it, but you know, it's a far cry from being passable by today's standards. So when you go far back enough, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. And you get to see practical things on set that you believe. And there's such an artistry to practical effects. You know, I I have a deep love for them because so much sweat and blood gets poured into them, uh, you know, just for hours and hours, somebody working on something that may only get like, you know, 10 seconds or less of screen time, you know, and they would have spent like six hours on it. I think, you know, just the amount of effort, the amount of willpower to work that hard on something. You know, yeah. just oh, to sell it. Oh, you've got stuff where they they work on something for six months and it only gets, you know, five seconds of screen Definitely. time. Sometimes it's 
the yeah. Johnny uh, dummy at the beginning in the cemetery that falls on the on the tombstone. It's so graphic. It, it's it's up a, especially in HD. It that dummy's on screen a little longer than it should be, but that impact is still so cr- cringy. It's just like ah, it looks so painful. Yeah, watching the neck break. Yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. You know, I'm normally good at spotting that stuff. Now that you're saying that it's a dummy, I need to go back and watch because I, I watched this film like at least twice before doing this podcast. And I right. I kept wondering how they did that. I was like, I knew, you know, I know it can't actually be Bill Mosley, you know, falling and breaking his neck because, you know, he was in House of a Thousand yeah. Corpses a few years later. So clearly he didn't die for the right. movie. So he didn't but, die. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it was a really incredibly great looking dummy, you know? Yeah. It's de- it's definitely not something you know notice e- the first few times you watch it for sure because it's done very well. Yeah. Um. Of course, again, I've seen the film like thirty times, so going into it, even though I haven't seen it in a while, I know it's a dummy. I've seen it so many times. I just know that there's a dummy in that shot. Yeah. But I'm not looking for those things. It's just obviously you notice more and more and more. No matter how many times you watch a movie, you're gonna always notice more things. Um. Even like when she's you know she's hitting the zombie in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the with the fire poker, I for the longest time I didn't realize that was a dummy she was hitting. Like I was like, man, it looks so real. Like, cause there's some shots where it's a rubber fire poker and they have the real zombie actor in there, but then they switch it with a real fire poker and she's whacking this thing as hard as she can. And it looks very real. It's misdirection, like Savini says. He's he has you so focused on her and her actions and her swings, you start missing this thing is not really articulating like a normal human being it's kind of like a little stiffer than normal right when they switch it out and it, t- it took me forever to realize that that was a dummy i didn't realize it for the longest time yeah so if something works for the first 10 times you see a movie it works <laughs> you know? oh definitely there's so many little things like that sprinkled throughout this film that really just make it special make it hold up after 30 years yeah you know, the scene where they're at the cemetery, where she took the flowers out of the ground, the pokers, and she's she's smacking the zombie so many times with that poker and she gets her brother in the hand. And I'm thinking like, yeah, it, it's moving like a real person. Like, but is it a spring loaded thing or is it is that a dummy? And it's actually going into it. There's I normally know these things and I can point them out pretty well. And in this film, I get tricked a lot and I'm surprised by it. Yeah. Going back to the opening. Jesus Christ. Right out of the gate, the first jump scare still got me. Like, I knew it was coming, and yet I still didn't know it was coming. I was expecting it, and still it came at a very unexpected moment. Like, I actually jumped. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'm talking about is when they they misdirect you, and that's not really the first jump scare. It's just playing with you if you've seen the original. It's like, oh, he's not a zombie. He's just confused old man, and he's got a head wound. But they misdirect you again. You're looking at that guy as he's walking away, and then G- uh, Johnny is perfectly like blocking the left side of frame mm-hmm. and no one notices it till it's too late. But the real zombie comes out of nowhere, pushes him aside and goes straight for Barbara. Right. And it happens so fast that it does. Yeah. As you're reacting, it's already on top of her. It's just done so well. It's, it, it it's, is. They know what they're doing. It's crafted perfectly. And it it doesn't get old for me anyway. It it never gets old. Fair enough. But, you know, thinking about that, the confused old man who's the misdirect, I think it's so interesting that he walks up to them 
and he says that he's sorry and he has that cut on your head and you're kind of confused at first and looking back and I, I wonder is it like does he already know that the zombies are there and he's not going to tell them hopefully that they'll be there's bait so he could get away oh yeah there's a lot going on there and to tell them that he's sorry i think he while he's essentially killing them i thought was really interesting <laughs> yeah i think i think he's just dazed and confused i mean i think he's hey i i think he's in shock honestly i don't think he has any ma malicious intent i really think he's just in shock whatever just happened to him he's still processing it you know that's true because we see barbara in that state later yeah, I mean, how would you react, right? Yeah. But the, the cemetery is a good example of daylight horror. Yes, it is. There were supposed to be storm clouds, and they were going to have this very moody scene, like with overcast, and it was going to be very spooky. But, of course, the film gods said no, <laughs> and that, that, that weathered pattern didn't happen that day. They had a clear, bright sky, and they had to shoot anyway. But because the effects stand up, it works. You're immediately confronted with the enemy and they don't pull any punches. Yeah. It, it, thank God the effects stand up. They're done so well that you can film it in daylight and it just makes it more horrifying because you can see every detail. Exactly. You don't have to hide it. You know, I, I think it actually worked in their favor because it, it turns the world upside down. You know, because in horror movies, people rely so much on the dark to make things scary. To have something that scary happening in broad daylight just goes to show, like, this will happen anywhere at any time. Yeah, you're not safe. And I think that makes it more terrifying. You know, even on the most beautiful day, the, the most gruesome thing imaginable is happening. The cinematography in this film is is amazing. I mean, you have that daylight scene and the effects make it work. But then once you get to the house and then they actually get into a controlled setup, I mean, it's beautiful. Like there's enough light where you still see details, key things that you need to see. But then there's so much of it that's just drowning in black darkness where yes. you're not sure what's in that corner. So they play with both angles, you know, where it's like I can clearly see what I can clearly see, but there's just enough that I'm not sure about. Right. Something could be there. Something could be around that corner. And that it's still broad daylight outside. So you have that sunlight coming in that should make you feel warm and safe. But they just cast larger shadows in certain areas in the house. And it, it, it brings that spooky atmosphere, even though you're still in the middle of the day. It creates a disorienting feel to have the contrast between the light, between the shadow, the eyes adjusting, you know, are your eyes playing tricks on you as they're adjusting from going from, you know, the shadowy corner of the house to the slider part of the house. And right. You know, definitely um, it plays with the mind a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And as simple as it looks, I can tell it's not simple setups. They, it's, it's, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And I really love it. It almost has a noir look to it because there are some very harsh shadows on like covering half of a character's face sometimes yes while the other half has like a very strong key light on it and it's a striking image but um and then the performances are amazing i mean maybe not the supporting cast they're okay yeah. <laughs> but the i mean not the the but the the leads, leads. i guess you could and say you know I think Bill Mosley even though he's only in the first 5 minutes you know before he breaks his neck on the headstone the way he 
he acts so creepy with his sister, you know, I'm coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> right. He establishes that there's so much life within him. Being that older brother who messes with his sister, but, you know, also while he's doing that, establishing that spooky attitude, there's just so much character development. He shows himself having so much humanity in just those few minutes that he's there that it's so tragic when he dies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's the that's the thing that maybe I'll come back to this things I would do differently. But it's good to know that, like, yeah, he's messing with his older sister. He kind of seems like a dick. But when the shit hits the fan, he really does try to save her. Like, that's what's so tragic about his demise is that he was really trying to save the day. And, and he was willing to sacrifice himself because he threw himself on this attacker to save his sister without hesitation. Yeah, no hesitation you know? at all. So it's it's it sucks that he, you know, he dies, obviously, uh, and so quickly. He's a good example of like a, a small like there there are no small roles, only small actors. So he really makes, you know, what that role is. He shines in it and makes it more than it could have yes. been. He, it could have been very forgettable. Um, when they get into the house, I'm not super keen on the on the uh, the family member who lives there and the uh, his girlfriend. I, I can't even remember their names. They're they're really not that important. When it comes to uh, Tony Todd, uh, Tom Towles, and and Patricia Tallman, they're they're the holy trinity of this film. Their performances are home runs for me. Right. And I mean, especially when, when Tony Todd shows up, it is the most badass. Yes. Like, I'm glad we're getting to this. It's part. the most badass zombie movie entrance. Like I think I've ever seen in any movie. Like he just, <laughs> so he runs over a zombie, hops out a truck, smoking a cigarette with a crowbar. And it's just like no nonsense immediately. He's like, come on. Yeah. And he's like, judo kicks a zombie. Yes, yes, he judo kicks <laughs> a zombie. Like, and it is just. Yes. It's yes. so good. He's not having it's, it. It's, you're just like. He's not having you it. You just, you get this feeling inside you and you're like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, immediately. He just, he, he judo kicks a zombie. He fucking grabs a frying pan over the head. Yeah. Drags that son of a bitch outside and immediately takes over this house. He's just like, this is my house now yeah. where it's yeah. safe. And, <laughs> and you're like, he did not come to fuck around. You're like, man, what's going to, what is this chick going to even do? She's so ill prepared. And then this dude shows up and you're like, oh, she's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> she's going to be fine. And you know, I think what's so great about, Tony Todd's performance and the character Ben is that he does all that, but then you see his softer side too after he's with Barbara for a little bit and he's trying to get her to come out of that shell shock. And, oh, yeah. And he hugs her to let her know everything's okay. And yeah. And you just see that he's just so all around such a good person, you know, like, like he just met her and, he, and he's there for her and, you know, and he's killing zombies and he, he's just, he's, he's everything. A hero should be. Yeah, and it's and he's not patronizing either. No. He's like telling her, "You've got to fight." Basically, he's like, "This the shit hit the fan, and it's time to deal with it." And because in the original, Barbara never comes out of that catatonic state. Right. She's stuck in that for the entire film, and that's all you get out of her. No strong female lead whatsoever, mm -hmm. uh, especially in that time period. They. That's one of the things that's so great about this film is they went in a different direction. They talk about. Uh, alien and like the whole ripley situation and and uh it was very i guess it was very much in the political climate at the time which i don't know why it's in the political climate again because it seems like people just haven't been watching movies as much as me because i've been seeing a lot of strong female characters my entire life 
but I, I can hearken it back to this particular period where it started. Yeah. It's like 88, 90 onwards is where you get these really awesome, badass chicks in movies. Yeah. And I've always loved it when it's believable. I've seen bad movies, obviously. You can make a bad movie starring anyone. But I've seen movies where it's not believable, whether it's a man or a woman, and you're just not invested. But when it's done right, I'm I'm all on board. And this is one of those movies where it's done right because you get to see her deal with this in real time and process and become a badass. Right. She doesn't just show up like, I've always kicked ass, I'm a badass. You right. know? It's like, she 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 gets strong. She becomes strong. And it's the same thing with Ripley and Alien. Um, and obviously with Tony Todd's character, he shows up a badass. But like you said, when he softens up and he t- tells more, there's there's very powerful dialogue where he actually you get into his backstory and he talks about what happened at the diner and mm-hmm. you know, being overtaken by zombies. So he basically he already went through his catatonic state. It just happened somewhere earlier for him in the timeline you know so by the time he shows up at the house he's been f- dealing with zombies right so you know so it's believable you just meet him later in his journey uh i know like one of the very powerful things he talks about when uh he saw people loading them up uh 10 20 in a truck like they know what they're gonna do with them and he says that you know they open it up to let one more in and they all come spilling out like insects and he's just you can see it like in his expression he's just he's he's really reliving it and that's where you can see like how he's processing the horrific nature of what he's witnessed it's almost like he didn't have time to do it then yeah no he was too busy surviving yeah there's uh this wasn't a big budget movie 4.2 million seems like a lot but especially for this time period that is not a lot of money to make a movie so Obviously, there was no money left over for scoring the film. That's why it's really outdated synth. <laughs> <laughs> All done by one guy. <laughs> That's the one thing that probably... Well, I, I don't want to say it hasn't aged well because synth scores are very much in vogue again. So <laughs> it kind of came full circle, I guess. But it doesn't sound like the current synth scores. It still sounds pretty dated from like something left over from the 80s. It's weird. It's weird. I don't want to say it's like a downside to it, but it's it's not what you'd be expecting from a film like this. It's not how you expect a film like this to sound. Um, yeah. I think you'd expect more tonal, eerie, ominous sounds to be coming uh, in, in the background or something. And it's it's just kind of like, ding, 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 ding. And you're just like, okay, I guess that's what we're doing. <laughs> You got them. You got them new sense scores for us, Gary. It's I mean, like, I'm one. One more. Hang on. I like them, but in a sense, it's because it brings me back to a different time when I watch it. That, yeah, um, nostalgia. To a time when when a lot of horror movies had that sound. So, uh, to me, I make that special connection. But I could see how you know somebody who's not in our age group who didn't grow up with these movies um, would just not get it, and how it could completely take them out of the film. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't take me out, but, you know, I was definitely aware of it. Definitely aware of it. That's the one thing that's kind of different as opposed to anything else you'd be watching from today or even even at that time period, they weren't doing that still. It's just because they didn't have the budget, they kind of went in that direction. Yeah. Um, and Romero was used to doing that, so I felt like he was comfortable with it. But once, once they get into that house, we haven't touched on that, and it was something I wanted to talk about. I think it's very interesting how Cooper is the exact opposite 
of Ben and how you see how Ben kills all those zombies. He comforts Barbara. Yeah. You know, he does so much for the group. It's essentially we're watching somebody who is selfless versus somebody who is selfish. Um, Right. And I think that internal battle between selfishness and selflessness gets really interesting inside that house. Oh, definitely. It's interesting how much um, selfishness can win up to a point in this movie. Right. Well, because when you're looking out for number one, there's a lot of variables that you don't have to take into account. Right. So if you're just going to lock yourself in the cellar, uh, you don't have to worry about boarding up the windows or where you're going to get the wood to do that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's funny because, Jesus Christ, Cooper, as much of a, as, of a dick as he is, it sucks because he's kind of right the whole time, actually, because as they show you, boarding up the windows is what attracts all those zombies to the house. Yeah. They establish that one zombie walking into the foreground. It's a nice shot with the house in the background, and she just stops she hears the banging and turns towards the house and goes. And that just tells you everything you need to know right there. They're attracted to sound. Fun tidbit. That woman was actually the homeowner of the house and she wanted a cameo in the movie. Yeah, I was going to say that. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say that. It's funny. I mean, like, it's like, sure, why not? Why not? I'll be a zombie in front of my house. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) You know, that is true. Um, And it's interesting to point that out that, you know, as much of a Dick Cooper was, I guess he was right about that. As much as I want Ben to, you know, be right 100% of the time just because he's the hero. Yeah. You know, I think in the end a bit, if if you let me jump there, if you don't think it's too soon. No, go ahead. Yeah. There's no there's no fucking time is irrelevant. Yeah. Well, I think it's (laughs) interesting because in the end, Cooper lived because he went up to the attic while Ben dies in the basement. Right. I think there's a lot of symbolism in that. So even though, you know, Ben's actions drew the zombies to the house, in the end, I feel like even though he's dead, he still has the last laugh, especially, you know, with Barbara killing Cooper, you know, for being such a dick and shooting Ben and causing Ben's death. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, um, it goes down the way it goes down because of the the conflict that bubbles up. The tensions have been rising the entire time in that house and they get to a boiling point and then uh, yeah. everybody starts popping off. <laughs> well, the last straw you know? was the daughter because Cooper just couldn't get a handle on the situation. He couldn't. Oh, yeah. He couldn't face the reality that was in front of him that, you know, this is happening. Your daughter is not your daughter anymore. And, you know, when Ben tries to save them from having a zombie within the house, you know, just Cooper just just rather shoot a living human being who's still a human being than kill his own daughter. Cause you know, his daughter is almost an extension of himself. You know, that's how selfish he is in my eyes, at least. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, as much as Cooper is a dick, um, he has one of my favorite lines in the movie, which is you bunch of yo-yos. <laughs> he, he sells that really well. Yeah. I've never heard that in anything ever in my life. Except for this film, he says it about three times, and I used to call everyone yo-yos when I was a child because of it. <laughs> <laughs> He's so grumbly about it, too. He's like, yeah, bunch of yo-yos. Yeah. Like, and then he's like, yeah, bunch of yo-yos. <laughs> and he's so angry. We got, we got to bring that back. <laughs> that's one of my best. That's one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. But yeah, so um, he's not a good guy, but he obviously cares about his daughter, who's sick. He's trying to take care of her. 
apparently doesn't care about his wife at all. He's really sick of that bitch. No. Like, he's yeah. just not having any of her shit. <laughs> he's, he was like, I didn't even want to go to this thing tonight. You dragged me out here. That's why she got bit. Like, right. So. Well, what I thought was interesting, they are dressed really nice, right? And yeah. I was almost wondering um, if they kind of lied about their backstory and if they had maybe been attending a funeral. And that's how the daughter got bit. That would be interesting. I don't know, because you don't get much of their backstory. And that was just something I was speculating on. Yeah, you don't know exactly where they were going or where they were coming from. But yeah, obviously it was something fancy. Um, Yeah, they claim that their car uh, broke down on the interstate or highway, something like that. Right. But there's a lot of great character moments. I mean, I guess earlier in the film, uh, or well, this is later than what we were just talking about, but earlier than the ending, I mean... I call it Barbara, uh, Barbara's Kia moment, which is basically when she just like starts kicking ass. But uh, it's when she's shooting the skinny guy, actually. So, yeah, there's a skinny zombie coming through the window and she just starts like because everyone's still not processing that these are zombies. These are dead people that are walking. People are like, that doesn't that doesn't make sense. That's not real. Mm-hmm. And then she just starts pumping bullets in this thing's chest like is it dead yet is it dead yet i love that moment so much it's great because it's finally like she's full commando mode at this point and then even ben's trying to act like he's commando still and he's the hero and he's like he's like hey you're losing it chill out relax and she's like oh you think i'm losing it you think i'm losing it and she just rails into everybody like you can talk to me about losing it when you all stop screaming at each other like a bunch of two-year-olds and the way she sells that line is like it's perfect oh yeah uh, miss tallman knocks that out of the park for me and then she just headshots the zombie like i by the way i'm a marksman like yeah no, that, <laughs> that, that was just great for so many different reasons I, I just watching her break out of her shell watching that sort of character transformation is such a win and then just watching her just make everybody else in that house look like such an asshole was great because because you're getting so irritated by them by that point in the film because exactly. they just can't get their shit together i mean with the exception of ben you know that blonde chick who just keeps wailing well, ben's at odds though Huh? I wouldn't even say Ben has his shit together because he's trying, but he's very much at odds with anyone who isn't doing exactly what he thinks is best. And that's not cooperative behavior. You know, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. I try to be very zen with people. And if I was in that situation, I wouldn't be challenging everything that someone said. I'd be trying to get them to understand what I need them to understand so that we can work together. Yeah. Right? So... You want to stay in the basement? That's fine, man. Let's come up with a plan where everybody's safe. Like, so if you want to hold down the cellar and take care of your daughter, I'm going to do what I can up here to make sure that zombies can't get into the house in the first place. So I'm our first line of defense. I'm doing that for everybody, right? I will try to make them understand that. I'm going to try my best to make sure that they can't even get into the house in the first place. If that doesn't work, we need to work together and I need to go down there because that's our last resort. Yeah. I feel like someone would understand that. Like, okay, you're going to be up here trying to make sure that we're safe. You're helping me protect my family. You're not trying to get my family killed, you know? Yeah. And that's easier said than done sometimes. Definitely. But that's, that's an approach to take. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to just, fuck you. 
<laughs> the seller's a death trap, you fucking idiot. Like, eh. of course, movies are conflict. So obviously I would have ruined movies if I were in them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, ultimately, I mean, they could have just turned off all the lights and stayed real quiet and zombies probably wouldn't have walked up to the house. You know, I mean, boom, movie's over. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's not a very interesting movie. So let's go hide in the attic, turn off all the lights, make sure there's absolutely, you know, no sound, nothing to draw them in. You know, I mean. But that's just to my point of like, he's not perfect. He's doing things in uh not he's not being selfish but he is sort of being egotistical okay i could see it like that and I, everybody has character flaws yeah i mean i mean look it's it's tony todd if anyone deserves an ego in this movie i mean he single-handedly is beating the shit out of zombies on the porch with a torch and it's awesome and that rhymes and i didn't mean it to <laughs> but it, it did and we can't take it back oh my god when that when the first time i saw that scene i was so worried that he was gonna die on like yeah. on the porch there were just so many zombies it was so hopeless he gets left behind and you're just like well he's he doesn't have a gun he's lost his torch what's it? and then he just starts tackling zombies and punching zombies on his way back to the I house i thought that was the best because it showed that you could do something without needing a weapon still and he, and he could still be a badass just all by himself just with his own exactly. body it was he's just Oh my God, he's just sweeping legs and punching zombies in the face. And he's just, until he gets all the way back to the house and gets back inside. And you're just like, well, that's, well, who, what's going to stop this guy then? I mean, <laughs> and obviously a dick with a gun who shoots yeah. him. But, you know, that's, no one can outrun bullets, but. <laughs> and talk about stupid though, to go back to that gas station scene. I mean, this useless blonde girl who's just been obnoxious the whole movie, like just oh, yeah. can't hear anything. She's just like, like, why is she the one driving? Jeez. Okay. Because her dad owns trucks. They're like, we lost him. We lost him. And she's like, should we go back? Or, you know, I mean, she's just so lost. And then the other guy's panicking because she, I mean, I would be panicking too, just because she's so much of a head case. She's even hard to be around. He's like, let me just shoot the lock off this gasoline. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. Let's okay. Yeah. Let's, I mean, that's definitely something. That's definitely something I would fix in my version. Let's, oh God. Yeah. Um, so that's something you would fix? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I guess let's get into some of the changes. But I mean, before we do that, I want to go over some some uh behind the scenes type stuff. We covered some things, but well, and then some of this stuff is things people may not know. So Romero, you know, he invented the modern idea of zombies, basically. A lot of people don't realize where our idea of the walking dead comes from. And it's very much Romero and Russo and their original uh, inception of the idea Mm -hmm. of Night of the Living Dead, the 68 version. Yeah. We touched over a little bit, but basically what happened with uh, the original, there was a big infamous copyright debacle where the original title was Night of the Flesh Eaters, and there was already a film called The Flesh Eaters, so the distributor told them they should change the title. Romero agreed. They changed the title to Night of the Living Dead, and somebody in the office who was distributing the film screwed up and didn't include the copyright onto the new film with the new titles. Mm-hmm. So they basically cut the frames that had the copyright claim on it. They didn't find out until years later that it was being screened and treated as public domain. And it became a very big battle for them to get the copyright back. And to this day, they still have not reclaimed the copyright to the original Night of the Living Dead. 68 version tragedy 
I mean, it, it, yes and no, I guess, because it led to the remake, which I love so much more. That's true. You know, it is what it is. I mean, it, it's it's kind of weird how, you know, little mistakes cascade into these things. Yeah. OK. And then another little fun tidbit. Uh, Tom Savini almost did the effects for the original Night of the Living Dead, actually. Really? Yeah. He was chasing Romero around, showing him his uh, portfolio of work and. Romero was like, oh, we could definitely use you. The only reason he wasn't able to was because he went to Vietnam. <laughs> wow. He was a combat photographer. Yeah. Wow. So he ended up going to Nam instead of doing the effects for Night of the Living Dead. I did not know that. And I didn't realize that Tom Savini was that old. And I did not know that he was a veteran. Hats off to that. That's really impressive. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you don't have to be that old to go to war. I mean, he could have been 18, 19. Yeah, sad. Yeah. I saw the pictures. He didn't look like he was older than 25, honestly. Okay, that, yeah, that adds up. They, oh, this is so funny. I never realized this. It's just, it's just funny. He's a funny character. And I always knew there was something special about him. Uh, I found out in the behind the scenes this time around. Do you know that guy at the end of the movie who's wearing an eye patch? Who's like, he's just like talking to the news and he just sounds so dumb. He's just like, oh, they're dead. Yeah, they're all messed up. And it's just like, that guy is the actor who played the original Johnny. Oh, that's great that they included him in this. I like that. I know. It's just a little Johnny cameo. OG Johnny. I did not know that. Um, and then uh, here's a little uh, note about, so you, you had mentioned about Savini uh, saying only like 40% of his ideas got into the film. Yeah. And you know what? I got to say, that's probably for good reason. Because <laughs> what, what he originally wanted to do, he wanted to start the film in black and white. And then he wanted to transition to a sepia tone. Oh. Before going into full color. Uh, yeah, no. That's a bad idea. Yeah. I don't know what the symbolism in that would have been. He wanted to, the way he says it in the commentary was the first part makes sense. Black and white. He said he wanted to ease the audience into the, the remake. So for the original fans, it starts like black and white, like the original. And then he would ease you into color. But to go from black and white into a sepia tone makes no sense whatsoever. In fact, I would argue that the sepia tone is a look that's even further back than black and white. I mean, it, when you see sepia, you immediately think of like the 1930s and 20s. That's like one of the first film emulsion looks, you know? Yeah. So like, it's like you're going backwards in time with the look of the film before jumping into color. And I just don't see how that would have worked. It doesn't add anything to the film. If anything, it would just confuse the audience. It would, it would take them out of the movie. Yeah. You know, I think there's only one movie that could truly pull doing that off. You know, it's called The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> let's, let's leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, I would give him the benefit of the doubt if he said he wanted to go from black and white to color and like slowly introduce color. But that sepia tone in the middle. No, that's not going to work, yeah. man. Big X canceled. It's his directorial debut. He didn't know any better. Thank God the producers knew better <laughs> and said, no, we're not doing it. Well, that. that's why you have producers <laughs> on a film, because even though somebody could be brilliant and have a lot of good ideas, you know, even the best of us have some bad ideas sometimes. Definitely. I mean, especially if you own the original property. Yeah. So, OK, I guess now we can get into the changes I would make, because this podcast is the film's 
I wish I made. Mm-hmm. God help me. If I could remake this film one day, I really will. I, I, I'm i still like, it's possible, right? It's been 30 years. It's it's due. Maybe. <laughs> I think I, here's the thing. If I remade this film, I would be remaking the 90 version. I would not be remaking the 68 version. I would be taking I would be starting from all the liberties they took with the 90 version. OK. Um, And I think I would keep a lot of things uh, very similar. I would definitely shoot it differently. I like to move my camera around a lot more. Not that this one doesn't have camera movement, but I like to move it in more interesting ways that reveal things slowly, gradually. They had some movement up into a point and they would just cut. Yeah, yeah, they do do that. But so, yeah, here's, here's I guess, in no particular order, because these are just things that came to me as I was watching it. Like, they're, they're just, they're, they're sort of random. One thing for me, going back to Tommy, that dumb son of a bitch... <laughs> I don't believe Tommy is dumb enough to shoot a gas tank. I really don't. I don't feel like they made him that dumb of a character. It always pissed me off when he does that. You could fix it by maybe just the simplest way would be to make him seem dumber, to actually make him like, oh, this is a stupid guy. Yeah. I wish I I, I would want to do better by that character and maybe have that explosion happen differently. Like maybe it's a sacrifice and maybe they've already got his girl and he's about to get eaten alive and they're going for, uh, you know, Ben or something like that. And then maybe he decides to shoot the gas tank because they don't have the right keys anyway. That would have been a lot stronger. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I, and, and, and honestly, blowing yourself up to kill a horde of zombies is a bit cliche at this point in zombie movies. Yeah. But I still feel like that's that's better than I'm a fucking idiot. So I shot a gas tank and not realize. Especially because that kid kind of is wearing like a hunting esque getup. Uh, clearly, the guy's a hunter. You know, it, it actually costs a lot of money to mount deer heads and stuff. So, you know, if that's their house and he grew up with gun knowledge and gun safety, this is how you handle guns when we're killing things. He he wouldn't have shot up a gas tank. Yeah, not to say that you're not right about that, but technically it's his uncle's house. But obviously, I'm sure his house is very similar. Right, yeah. Um, It's a very Hollywood liberal idea of a hick to do something like that. Yeah. Because the liberal writing that has no idea how guns work to the level of a gun owner. Yeah. A gun owner would, would not do that. A gun owner, they go hunting, they go to the range, and they play with their guns. So they know how to use their guns yeah. and they know gun safety and they know what guns are capable of. It just shows you what you don't know as a person who doesn't use guns. Yeah. And I try, and when I write something, I try to get into that character space. Like what, what kind of knowledge do they have? What do they know? Right. Do they know things that I don't know? Yeah. And then I have to do research on those things. Cause how am I going to write about it? If I don't know anything about it, the next thing I would do is make Cooper more sympathetic. Uh, I would make it very much more about him being torn between doing the right thing and protecting his sick daughter and family. Uh, I would definitely tone it down with him being an asshole to his wife. Mm-hmm. I'm totally fine with him still getting into it with Ben at that level. Right. But then I I, I want to see him go downstairs and hold his sick daughter's hand and kiss her and tell her she's going to be all right and be this loving father. I want to see the juxtaposition of this person who can be this evil asshole upstairs with this other guy because they're they're both alphas or betas that are barking at each other and then explore his tender side where you realize this is a human being this is a father this is a husband 
he just wants his family to get out of this alive. That would certainly be a lot more tragic, and that would definitely add a lot more depth to the film had his character had more depth instead of his character seeming like he's just there simply to be an obstacle to Ben. Exactly. That's where I would approach it from. And then I would like to have it obvious that Ben knows that the girl is going to turn. Maybe a bit of dialogue or something, but Ben tell uh, Barbara at some point, it's like, I saw someone get bit by one of those things and tell her what happens. Like he didn't last long. And before long, he was one of them. We got to do something about this. And then that's a whole new source of conflict. It's not just a surprise at the end of like, oh, she's a zombie now. Like, because we all know at this point, she's going to turn into a zombie as an audience. Mm -hmm. To know that someone else in that house knows that adds to the tension, yeah. in my opinion. No, that would. I don't think I would have them break the TV either. I would want to use that in the Denoma. When Ben's in the basement listening to the radio, I would have that be the TV instead. Um, I just feel like that keeps it more updated. I mean, who's really listening to the radio anymore? Mm -hmm. And I feel like you could get a better visual with him like actually having a TV set up down there. Um, and the whole idea of you not getting reception in the basement doesn't really even make sense anymore because obviously we have digital TVs now. So, and and also it, it the TV works as a practical light too. It, it would it would be illuminating the basement. All right. Uh, I think I wouldn't want to spend more time with Ben. I would open the film with maybe uh a visually striking montage of the things that Ben describes later on in the film. Like as he's talking about them, cut to that. No, no, I would, I would like think of like an opening credit sequence, a lot of stuff in high frame rate, slow motion. When he describes he saw the zombies spill out, I would actually have that shot in the beginning opening credits. Okay. I would have my credits appearing over that diner being taken over by zombies. When he talks about the guy with an assault rifle spraying into the diner and one of the zombies getting hit a bunch of times and not dropping until he gets hit in the head. I wouldn't overly explain these things. It's just a little bit more show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. So I would just kind of push in on those key moments and like him observing how he gets all this knowledge. Um, and I, would, I wouldn't spend too much time on these things because I still want similar dialogue later on when he actually describes the horror of it to Barbara. Right. But then at that point, you would kind of recall those shots and be like, oh, I actually have something. And I only saw a little bit of it. Now he's describing it in more detail. And because I just have that little bit to go off of, now my imagination can run with whatever he's saying now. Because he has a, such a cool story. I just want to like see a little bit more of him before he gets to the house. Right. And then I would go to the cemetery with Barbara and Johnny. Okay. Yeah. I think, the you know, obviously I would update the action. Uh, like the shootout between Ben and Cooper, I would do that a little bit more streamlined. It's very stop and go. Mm -hmm. Because it's very clear. It's like, oh, I've been shot in the stomach and now I fall back. You try to shoot her, but I shoot at you. Now I shot you in the stomach. Now you run up to the stairs. Now I run to the bottom of the stairs. Now I try to shoot you again, but you shoot at me and then I get shot in the arm. It's too much. It's, it's, it's boring as I describe it to you. But I would have that happen a lot quicker Okay. and have the, the audience um, have to catch up with what just happened. Right. Um, what else? What else? I would make it more moody, especially when when Barbara is walking away from the house at the end and she's like, oh, I can we can just walk around them. Um, I would have like her look back at the house and see like a swarm of zombies taking over, just flooding into it, mm -hmm. you know, and and, and just kind of have it be like a really moody, dark moment for her to see how far she's come as a character 
but then also to see how hopeless that situation was and to like take in the fact that she's outside of it right you know she made it out <laughs> i think that would have been quite a bit stronger i do think it needed a little bit more punch right there at the end with that and i think that would have helped yeah and knowing ben is still inside makes it even more more heartbreaking know. yeah yeah exactly and don't get me wrong it's a great scene when she there's that zombie with the doll and she shoots it and just that way she delivers that line like, oh god like it's a lot and i would maybe have something similar to that but still a bit more gravitas in terms of what's happening to the house behind her. Yeah. I did like the zombie doll. I Something similar should be kept. Oh, that brings me to another change. Instead of that zombie doll there, I would actually have that be Johnny as a zombie. You know, I thought that I read in, um, in trivia about this movie that they were thinking of bringing either Johnny or her mom back. Like, for some sort of emotional punch. Yeah, I saw that too. Like, she hallucinates her mother at one point. That's what they were thinking of doing. Mm -hmm. That's why she hesitates to shoot a zombie. They ended up not using that. Um, I only noticed because of the commentary this time around, but actually when she jumps into the the truck with all the dead bodies at the end, when the, those hicks shoot at her, mistaking her for a zombie, mm -hmm. the second dead body you see is actually Johnny. It's the it's the dummy Johnny that they use to break the neck. Oh, that was so quick. I didn't catch that. I know, but that's why she's so freaked out because she's on top of her dead brother. That's awful. I did not catch that. Yeah, it sucks. I don't think it sells very powerfully because she's very quickly like fine after it. Like after she gets out of the truck, she's like, I'm safe now. It's fun. Like, that's your brother. Like, you were just laying on top of your dead brother. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's a nice little Easter egg. I feel like they didn't script it necessarily. I feel like they just threw it in there. So That's possible, yeah. Yeah, I would definitely make it a bigger moment like that instead of that doll holding a zombie. Yeah. I feel like it'd be more powerful if she ran into her brother, which is a bit of an homage to the original because her brother does bash through the front door and come in and that's when she, that the original Barbara dies because she, she's almost starting to come out of this catatonic state, but she sees that and she just relapses and she just gets basically eaten by her brother. Yeah. So I, I feel like it'd be more powerful, but obviously in the contemporary situation where you have Barbara become a badass, she releases her brother from that curse. Yeah. Uh, you know, but the weight of that is there. And then when Ben has to kill the mother in the basement when he's locked down there. Right. I would actually do another homage to the original and ha when he points the gun at her, I would have him be out of bullets. So he backs away kind of like, Oh no, what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. Have him hit the wall and then find that little garden shovel hanging on the wall and have to kill her with that because that's how she died in the original. Her daughter turns into a zombie, but grabs that and starts stabbing her. Yes. And so I thought that would just be a cool homage to the original that he has to stab her with that little gardening tool. That actually would be. It. I like paying homage to the original content because even though we really like this remake, there were really great moments in the original. And I think um, definitely to highlight those and pay tribute to those, I think it would definitely be fascinating. And also it's it's hard to be in a house. And even though he didn't have much contact with the mother to, you know, instead of just quick and clean with a bullet, you know, to instead have to like, you know, stab her with a gardening shovel. That's just so much more emotional, so yeah. much more trauma than it needs to be. Exactly. It's a very dark moment. And then from there, I would have him sit in that chair with the TV, his hand bloody, drop the shovel in front of him, you know, smoke his last cigarette. And that's basically where he loses his shit. You know, it, he's the new Barbara 
because he's he's just been through so much only to wind up in this situation where he's he's lost all hope. So not that he goes catatonic, but he's definitely beyond saving at that point. He knows it's the end, yeah. Cut to black there and maybe pick up with Barbara walking during like the sunrise. And I would kind of tease the audience here where she just looks like a zombie mm-hmm. and she's just like walking like a zombie. But really, it would just be she's been walking all night. And she's tired and like, you know, okay. about to pass out. Digging that. Yeah, it'd just be a nice little transition of like, oh, no, they got her. Now she's one of them. But then come around and reveal that she's still being a badass and she's just marching forward. And I don't know. I feel, I feel like I could just end it there. I don't know if I need to, like, go back to the house like they do in the 90 version. I feel like we all know what's going to happen. Yeah. She got away. Cooper, I feel like I would probably have him die in that shootout. That'd be interesting. Like, yeah, they both slowly die from their wounds from the shootout or Cooper would have been dead instantly. I think if anything, maybe I'd have him uh, get pushed into the zombies coming into the house or something like that. You know, like, okay. like he deserves that that fate, you know, because of what he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe he doesn't even get shot. And that's what sucks about it. He shoots everybody else. They shoot at him, but he doesn't get hit. Maybe even he could like go out on the roof or something and then fall off into the zombies. So it's his own fucking fault, you know? That could be interesting. I would I think I would go more in that direction. Cause once the horde takes over that house and Barbara leaves, the movie's over at that point. Everything else after that is like Romero saying, By the way, this is the message. They are us and we are them and we're no better. And it's like, yeah, but you spent the entire movie showing me that. And I got it. I watched the movie. I, I get your message. Just the way he puts it at the end in that little camp and everything. It's just like for the slow people yeah. that don't understand what the movie's about and, and uh, our humanity or lack thereof. So I don't feel like it's necessary to go back to the house. Well, it's interesting with that ending is that I get a lot of Dawn of the Dead vibes from those those few minutes that you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's the same because it's the same message. It's the same idea. Yeah. You know, so that's in a nutshell what I would do differently. Obviously, my vision and my directorial style would play a significant uh, role in how I would do those things. But those are just some like basic story changes I would want to make or uh, character changes I would want to make. Right. And yeah, Night of the Living Dead, 1990. Great film. Tony Todd kicking ass. This is a film I wish I made. And I guess that concludes the first episode. I feel good about it. How do you feel, Haley? I feel good. Shit, I kind of wish I made that movie too. <laughs> I mean, it's a fucking, it's a great movie. You, do, you direct it, I produce it. I, th- I think that'd be a good combo. All right, we could write it together. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, all right, guys. I hope you enjoyed the first episode. Our next episode is going to be Jeepers Creepers. Mm-hmm. It's Haley's pick. Oh, yeah. Stay tuned, subscribe, comment, like, do all that stuff that helps us with the algorithms. Um, And we'll see you next time, you bunch of (laughs) yo-yos. You just had to. Bye. The Films I Wish I Made is a Dakin's production. Dakin's Productions is a multimedia company that does more than just make content. We also make original art such as comics and movies. But only with your support can we consistently thrive in the online arena of entertainment. Check out our coffee page where you can access premium and exclusive content for the right price. Until next time. Should I cut?